we're going to go ahead and get started. Hope everyone's doing well this morning. I'm doing good. Let's pray as we get, as we get started. Father in heaven, we are grateful to you for the fact that we have uh, a salvation that cannot be uh, that cannot be denied, it cannot be shaken, uh, no matter what happens to us, Lord, in this life, uh, the salvation that you have provided is safe and secure, and this is a salvation that you've been teaching to us and telling us about for millennia, for generations we have been hearing about this message, and we're going to look into how to understand and see that message, even in some of the oldest stories that we know. And, uh, Lord, that's a glorious thing. We ask for your blessing on our time and ask that we might be profited by it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, welcome. This is our second session of Seeing Jesus in the Old Testament as our core seminar. Um, And as Brad kind of introduced everything last week, uh, we're wanting to take several Old Testament stories and understand how it is that we can see that they proclaim the gospel story. Uh, If you will... We're going to reconstruct, or try to reconstruct, what the disciples on the Emmaus Road may have heard about each of these stories as Jesus showed himself to them through the scriptures. So today we're going to consider Noah and the flood. Uh, Just, you know, kind of a point of organization, we've picked well-known stories on purpose. So we're going to do Noah and the flood, we're going to talk about David and Goliath, Uh, next week we're going to do Abraham. Uh, sacrificing Isaac. These are stories that you are likely to be very familiar with, and the reason for that is that we didn't want to spend a lot of time orienting you to the content of the story. And we want to spend most of our time understanding how we apply the right hermeneutics to the Old Testament so that we can understand that Jesus is there and actually seeing him through uh, the story that we have on tap for the day. So we picked common stories. Uh, And our desire is that what you learn with these well-known stories will enable you to apply them to other passages that you read in the Old Testament. Okay, Noah and the Great Flood. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up. We're going to be in Genesis 6 through 9. That's that's where our story is. We're not going to read the whole thing. Like I said, you're familiar with the story, and there's more than we could cover if we, had to, if we decided to read the whole thing. But have your Bible open, so that way as I refer to various things, you can see it there as well. Right, in 2014, Paramount Pictures released a film starring Russell Crowe titled <laughs> Noah. Right? One would think that a movie with this title is a retelling of the biblical story, and that is indeed what Paramount claimed. There are, however, some events and details in the movie that, has, that, that are in common with the Bible story, and we'll just say that there's some that stray from the point just a little bit. Uh, much of the script is built on extra-biblical accounts of the flood narrative, and some of it they just made up. Here are some examples from the movie of things that you will not find in the Genesis account. Noah has a magic seed from the Garden of Eden that he plants, causing an entire forest to grow where he needs it to be. Uh, there are giant rock-like creatures called the Watchers, and they help Noah with his work. They chop down trees for him in one scene, and other points they defend the ark against people who would attack it. Uh, Tubal-Cain, one of the characters that we see um, uh, in, the, in the Bible, 
uh, was not destroyed in the flood. He apparently stowed away on the ark and had a fight with Noah in a, you know, some kind of a battle near the end of the movie. Uh, Methuselah, one of Noah's ancestors and who would have been living close to the time of the flood, uh, probably, probably right up until the time of the flood. But he makes some appearances in the movie and acts more like kind of a Gandalfy, wizardy, you know, sage kind of character in the in the in the storyline. And oh yeah, um, Rome, uh, Noah apparently was uh, a significant environmentalist. So, for all of these problems, though, those aren't the biggest problem with the with this with the movie. The biggest problem with the movie is that there's no Jesus in it. It's a completely Christless movie. Uh, they drew inspiration from all kinds of extra-biblical mystic writings about Noah and the flood, but nothing in all their research led them to believe that they should put Jesus in it. The story of Noah and the flood was written down by Noah, under the inst- uh, well, by Moses, but uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, roughly 1,500 years before Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Yet, This story, as it's told in the Bible, points us directly to Jesus and his cross. Any movie about it is a failure if that that point is not clear. Okay, so before we get to Noah and the ark, whoops, there was Hollywood Noah. Before we get to to Noah's ark uh, and the flood ourselves, I want to dive a little bit deeper into why we can do what we're doing. How is it that we're not just playing fast and loose with the Bible by seeing Jesus in the Old Testament when God did not explicitly write him into it. And to do that today, I want to look at what the Bible is. So big picture, kind of big picture question. What is the Bible? Uh, first of all, we need to understand that the Bible is God's story, right? Uh, we need to see that, this, that there is really only one author to the Bible, and that is God himself. And the Bible is his story. And what I mean by that, it's the story that he wants to tell, Right? Uh, yes, it tells us about him, but it's, it's, it contains all of those things that he wants us to know about him and understand about the salvation that he is preparing. So asking the question, when we read our Bibles, asking the question what, what he wants us to know about God in the, in the Bible should be the first thing that we're looking at whenever we look at any passage. Now, we often ask a different question when we're reading our Bibles, right? We, the first question we often ask is, what is it that I need to do? Or what is it that I need to believe? Or how is it that I need to be? That's, that's often when we're doing our devotions, that's what we're looking to get out. And that's not a bad question. It's a good question, but it's just not the primary question. It's not the first question we want to be asking of the text. The first question we want to ask is, what does this passage teach me about God? And then as an application of that, we can talk about what it's going to teach me about me or my circumstance or my life. Now, what was the pinnacle of God's revelation? What was the very top? That's Jesus, right? Everything that we know about Jesus and his work of redemption on the cross is the thing towards which the whole scriptures are driving. And since everything culminates in him, it only makes sense that every passage in the Bible ultimately points to him. And this is exactly the message Jesus, and his disciples, Jesus was teaching his disciples on the Emmaus Road. Everything in the Bible drives and points us to him. Comes to us in many parts, no question, written by many human authors. However, all of those authors wrote under the inspiration of God by the power of the Holy Spirit. So that's number one. That leads us to kind of a second thing that we want to understand about the Bible. The second thing we want to understand is that it is a 
unfolding story. It is a story that takes place over time. The Bible didn't come to us as a finished entity. We didn't receive all 66 books at the same time. We discussed this extensively in our previous course seminar on how to trust the Bible, right? The Bible has about 35 authors written on three continents in three languages over about 1,500 years. That all resulted in the 66 books that we now hold in our hand. Um, So it came in bits and pieces, and we call that idea progressive revelation. It It was revealed to us over time. So later parts of the story have more clarity and information than earlier parts do. So an example, we have the promise of a Savior in Genesis chapter 3. Without the later parts of the Bible, that is actually kind of hard to understand. We have God promising something, but we are not given much in the way of detail. We have this crushing of head and this biting of heel, but there's a lot of detail that's not there. And we would be hard-pressed if that's the only passage of the Bible that we had to understand the details about what God was, was planning on doing. The later parts of the Bible make it very clear, right? Good, so a faithful reading of the Bible can and should use this later information to understand earlier, less clear parts. We are perfectly justified in using the answer key at the end of the book to understand any story that we want to know about in the earlier part of the book. So the question we need to be asking ourselves is how do these early stories, how do later stories, sorry, later stories add more clarity and we, we should be looking to do that. Okay, this leads us to uh, the last thing I wanted to go over in terms of this idea of what is the Bible or establishing some foundation for us to, to work on here. And that is to understand that the Bible is just one big story. Many authors that we're familiar with today will write a story for a long time and then stop and move on to something entirely different. So, for example, one author I enjoy has written multi-volume stories of science fiction, historical fiction, and fantasy. None of the characters are the same. None of the storylines are the same. And while there are common themes, you could not draw any conclusions about the plot or message of his science fiction work concerning a Martian dream thief from reading his books about King Arthur. Right? The Bible's not like this. It's completely different. This is one single story presented in small pieces and bits along the way, but they all build together into one final overarching story arc. Last week, Brad showed us this map, right? It was a map of how all the roads in Europe kind of lead to Rome. And in the same way that the Roman Empire and now Europe is Rome-centric in this way, the Bible is Christ-centric. All of the stories trace back to Jesus and some aspect of his atoning work on the cross. If you want to dig into that more, again, go back to the, go back to the course seminar that we just did. Listen to it. It's online. Highly recommend it. And it'll, go, it'll take you through all of this in detail. But let's look at two ways, two ways that we can conceive of this overarching story arc that we have in the Bible. The first is sometimes called the gospel on the ground, right? So you have, and this is a a formula that we should all be familiar with. We've used it in evangelism sessions that we've done. We've used it as a way to present the gospel personally. God, man, Christ response, right? So God is the perfect and holy and created this world. He filled the world with creatures, the chief of whom was man, made in the image made in his image and perfect as well. But man fell into sin by disobeying God's command, and this world became corrupted and death entered it. Though we may try, it is impossible to escape sin, and we are entirely unable to obey God's commands anymore. Uh, Because we cannot obey, we are subject to God's wrath and are condemned for our sin to be punished in hell. 
But God in his kindness and love sent his son Jesus as a man to live a perfect life, take on our sin, and pay our penalty for us. He did this by dying on a cross as a sacrifice for our sins and rising again from the dead on the third day. And now, any who respond and place their faith and trust in him can have their sins forgiven and can become co-heirs, brothers of Jesus, with God as their father. So this story arc describes the gospel from kind of our perspective here on earth in the context of our life. There's another way to look at it. Uh, there's another way to say it is the gospel in the air, as it's, uh, as it's sometimes called. This is the idea of creation, fall, redemption, and new creation or restoration. So you see, and you see this cycle repeat itself all throughout the scriptures. Uh, it's the same gospel, not a different gospel. It's not a different story. It's the same story, just from a different perspective. So in the beginning, God created the world, perfect, just like he is. As a part of the world, he created man along with all of the other things and animals. However, man sinned by disobeying God's command, and the world fell into corruption and sin. As a result, all of us are guilty before him and are condemned to die. But God, in his wisdom, decided that he would make a way of salvation and sent Jesus to redeem the world by living a perfect life, dying as an innocent sacrifice to pay for the sins of man and rising from the dead. And now, any any who will have faith and trust in in Christ by repenting of their sins can be redeemed and live forever with God. And once all have come to Christ, this world will be recreated or restored into a perfect world that it no longer suffers from the effects of sin. Uh, This pattern, again, can be seen throughout the entire Bible uh, as the structure of many of the smaller stories. So whenever it is you see one of these patterns in a story that you're reading, latch onto it. Grab onto it as a means of seeing Jesus and the gospel in that part because it it mirrors the overarching story of the Bible. Okay, so that sets us up with some good principles to move on to our story for today, Noah and the Great Flood. Before I go there, are there any questions about what I'm I'm saying about the Bible or how we might be able to use that uh, for uh, understanding a story in the Old Testament? Okay, so just as a reminder, we have a certain structure that we're going to be following with our, um, with our uh, lessons each time we come together and talk about one of these stories. We're going to talk about blind readings, readings that don't see Jesus. They may still say good things, by the way, uh, but they don't see Jesus. Then we're going to start, we're going to take a couple of readings that are kind of fuzzy. They mention Jesus, they try to get to Jesus, but they don't really, they don't really get to the end goal. And then we're going to talk about 2020 readings or clear readings of the scripture that help us to see that Jesus is there and how it is that he's there and how we can uh, rejoice in that fact. So it is possible to read the story of Noah and the flood and completely miss Jesus. And here's, I've got two ways this morning that we can, that we can do this. The first one is, the first blind reading is a kid's Sunday school or kid's storybook reading, right? Uh, and I, I do want to be careful here. Uh, uh, though much of our popular understanding of Noah comes from kids' Sunday school classes, curric- uh, curriculums, and picture books, um, we're not, not intending to be disrespectful about any curriculum that you might have been a part of when you were a kid or how you might have learned about this story. Uh, the fact of the matter is, though, that many of them don't uh, help us to see where Jesus is in the story. And that's, what we're, that's my concern this morning, is so we can see that. We're not calling this blind as if, as if those curriculums were entirely bad or they didn't serve you well. Just wanting to help you see that they don't necessarily, they often don't necessarily get to Jesus, right? So 
Um, so the approach in these, in these readings of the story that are in this blind kind of mode is they zoom in on all the positive elements of the story, right? After all, we don't want our kids to be scared about God or worried about reading the Bible or anything like that, so we focus on the positive. We see, we see God telling Noah to save animals from a coming disaster. That's good. We emphasize on the goodness and kindness of God in providing this way of escape. Uh, and then in our minds, we kind of imagine Fisher-Price animals marching onto a cute Fisher-Price ark uh, and lions living peacefully with lambs and not attacking them and things like this, right? Uh, we use the story to capture the imaginations of our kids, tell them how much God loves the world that he created, and maybe teach them zoology on the way while we're at it. The problem here, of course, is that it misses the, the-, the main themes that are right in the passage itself, right? Uh, we see the boat and the cute animals, but what we don't see are all the animals that are not in the ark, Drowning. We don't see all the people clamoring up mountains and yelling at the ark, save me because the waters are rising up. We don't see that in these stories. And yet those are, those are part of the image of this story as well. That's true because all of these people and all of these animals are dying under the judgment of God. And the judgment of God is a major theme that, this, that these readings miss. And this is all through the passage, uh, 6, 5 through 13. We're going to look at a couple of these in a minute. Uh, 6, 5 through 13, 6, 17 and 18, chapter 7, 21 through 23, chapter 8, 22, 20 to 22, chapter 9, which is getting to the end of the story, verses 8, 8 through 17. All of these have these significant judgment elements in them. So it's all through this whole story. So let's take a look at a couple. Man is, man's sin is on full display in a greedy and violent society. Uh, look at Genesis 6, 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Right? Uh, Gen- move down to verses 11 and 12. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth and behold it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. So there's no question. This isn't a nice place to live, in one, at least in some sense. As a result of this, God acts in wrathful judgment on the wickedness of mankind. Look at the very next verse, uh, verse 13. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. So God is going to judge when, when sin comes in. Uh, but he's also gracious. Uh, God, he's gracious in salvation towards Noah and his family. Noah 6, 8 says, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So the entire earth wasn't without God's favor. Noah found favor. And then if you look at, at uh, chapter 7, verse 1, then the Lord said to Noah, go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. So God is gracious and is going to save some even though he may be judging most. This passage is a judgment passage, and frequently these readings miss that aspect entirely. By the way, the Gospel Project material that we use for our foundations classes does a good job of making these themes clear. Throughout their their treatment of the Old Testament, it's one of the things we like about it. They they work hard to make sure that every story we see where Jesus is and, and how we get there. So this is not something that is true of all Sunday school curricula. 
right? It's just true of some, and unfortunately, many that are quite common. All right, so that's one uh, kind of blind reading. Second blind reading, creation science. The, the story of Noah and the flood, or Noah and the ark, is a way to understand how the world is today and understand the, the structure of it and the, and the geology of it and all kinds of things like this, right? In this reading of the story, we zoom on the science behind the flood itself and maybe the logistics of building and having an ark. Uh, in this reading, the flood isn't primarily the means by which God exercises his wrath and judgment on wicked humanity, as we just saw. Instead, it is seen as a story that shows us why the earth appears like it does and yet is not as old as modern evolutionists argue. By the way, I do think that the Bible teaches that the earth is young, maybe six to 10,000 years old, and, that the fl- and the flood is actually important in defending that interpretation. But these interpreta- and, and so these interpretations have something to commend them in that way, but when we come to this section of the scriptures and want to interpret it, if this is all we focus on, then we've missed the main point of the passage, right? Moses didn't write Genesis 6 through 9 to prove the age of the earth or to combat modern Darwinism. He just didn't do it. He wrote it to show God's wrath towards sin and his grace towards his people. That's what he wanted us to see. So these are the blind readings where we don't see Jesus at all. There may be others, but these are a couple that, that, we, that we're going to go over today. So, fuzzy readings. Now, these are the readings where we're going to see there is an attempt, right? We're going to talk about Jesus a little bit. We're going to talk about God. We're going to talk about not just the here and nowness of the, of the stories, if you will. Um, and we're going to try to get there, but ultimately, they're, they're going to miss the mark. Okay, first of all, Noah is righteous like Jesus. So, we're looking in here at a, at a storyline where get the character of the Old Testament person, in this case Noah, and we're going to see what he's like, and we're going to try to draw conclusions that ultimately trace back to us, right? Um, so here's the approach. We make a one-to-one comparison between the righteousness of Noah and the righteousness of Jesus. We say things like, Noah is righteous like Jesus is, right? Jesus is righteous. And based on their examples, you can be righteous too. Now here's, here's the reasons to say this from the passage, because it's not you know, Noah's righteousness is not not there, right? Uh, Genesis 6, 8, and 9. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Here are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Uh, 6, 22 and some, some verses in chapter 8 say similar things. Noah is a righteous man. So non- unquestioned that this is a theme in the, in the passage. However, While Genesis 6 does emphasize the righteousness of Noah, that's not the whole story. It's missing, actually, a key part. Uh, Look at the end of the flood story in chapter 9. After after God saves Noah and his family through the ark, God makes a covenant with Noah and calls him and his offspring to live righteously under that covenant. That's verse 17. This is recreation in that story arc that we were talking about, right? The world has been destroyed, and now there's a new chance. It's a new beginning, and Noah's the guy that's going to lead it. Now we go to the very next verse, verse 18. And we, see, we, start, we start to see the beginning of a narrative where Noah fails miserably. I'm only going to read a piece of it, starting in verse 20. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Now we tend to talk about the good things about Noah, 
his righteousness and his faithfulness and how he obeyed God and built the ark, even though the whole world was saying, what are you doing? But we somehow usually failed to mention drunk, naked Noah. That just, we don't like that, and so we kind of just push it off under the rug and we're like, ah, well, you know. And then, and then we're flummoxed when somebody who actually has read a little bit of, of their Bible but doesn't believe it says, what about this? This, this doesn't look like a very good guy. You know, and, and we tend to get a little, little flummoxed at that point. Noah here is a new Adam. We don't want to, we don't want to lose that front, so that, that point in the story. Noah is intended to be a replacement Adam. The world has been recreated. We're starting over. But the reality is, simply starting over is not enough. And this Adam fails too. That's a major point in the story. Noah doesn't point us to Jesus by his obedience. Noah actually points us to Jesus because he can't obey and doesn't obey. And yet Jesus does and can and does perfectly. We don't need, we don't need another Adam. We need a new Adam. And this reading misses that point. All right, second fuzzy reading. Old Testament God versus New Testament God. In this reading of the story, we fall off on the other side of the donkey. In the previous reading, the focus was primarily on righteousness and good things and setting all of that up, right? In this reading, the focus is going to be only on wrath and judgment. This reading says something like this. This story is a perfect example of what the God of the Old Testament is like. He sees all the evil that's in the world, and he erupts into a volcano of wrath that covers the entire earth, so the God of the Old Testament is just angry and wrathful. But on the other hand, look in the New Testament. Here over here in the New Testament, we have a God who is gracious and kind, providing salvation to us through faith in Jesus instead of punishment. So you can see they're, they're trying to get to Jesus, right? The previous story tried to get to Jesus too. They were like, Noah is righteous like Jesus. Look at Jesus, copy Jesus. This one is saying, well, you have the Old Testament over here. That's all wrath and badness. Jesus is over here and he's all, you know, fuzzy, uh, warm fuzzies and goodness, right? And that's just, that's just not the way the story works out. It's not the way the story works out in its context and it's not the way that the Bible uh, talks about God or Jesus either. Um, so while the passage does emphasize God's wrath and judgment, again, it's just not the whole story. So the passage itself shows us that grace and kindness of God in the salvation of Noah and his family. They didn't deserve salvation any more than anything else. If you doubt that, you know, drunk naked Noah, right? They didn't deserve salvation any more than anyone else, and yet, and so Noah was a sinner just like we are, uh, but the reality is, is that salvation was still provided for him and he was still put onto the ark along with his family um, and, and they were saved from the flood. We don't have time to survey it, but the rest of the Old Testament bears this out. God is revealed over and over again as a holy, loving, righteous, and gracious God, right? And then in the New Testament, just to kind of go at the other side of this, right, where this reading wants us to see all warm fuzzies, The reality is, is that Jesus talks about hell more frequently and more strongly than most of the Old Testament does, right? Um, uh, We we see in the New Testament the same God uh, as the Old Testament, and Jesus doesn't even try to skirt around the fact that God has wrath towards sin. Um, God's act of graciously redeeming us through Christ shows his wrath as well, all of God's wrath is poured out on Jesus, 
right? So we're not talking about a New Testament that's absent of God's wrath. Uh, And then finally, in the final judgment, if you look at the book of Revelation, who comes in to do the judging? Jesus, with a sword coming out of his mouth to judge the world at that time. So in in that final judgment, it is Jesus himself who comes back to judge the earth by fire instead of water, as it is in this story. There's a key thing that we can latch onto, right? Judgment that destroys the earth, one's water, one's fire, but they both do the same thing. So we can't separate God's attributes from one testament to the other, right? We can't put all of his, all the things we don't like in the Old Testament and all the things we do like in the New Testament. The Bible just doesn't let us do it. Um, Both testaments give us the fullness of the revelation of who God is. That's our second fuzzy story. Gets, you know, tries to get there, but ultimately ends up missing the mark. So now we want to take a look at what our 2020 or our clear readings of the, of the story would be. Um, and the principle that I want, to, I want to, again, kind of go back to here is reading the Old Testament to see Jesus. In order to do that, we have to put on New Testament lenses, right? Uh, my glasses make it possible so that none of you are blurry and none of you are double. Okay, so my, I put on my glasses and I can see clearly what's, what's going on in front of me. Same thing here. We put on the New Testament. We look through the New Testament and, and we can understand what is happening in those older, less clear stories that, uh, that we might, where we don't have, just have details. <clears throat> so we're going to see that uh, primarily today through looking at two uh, New Testament passages. We have two places in particular uh, that, uh, that kind of talk about the flood, and we're going to use those to help us understand uh, how we can go back to the flood narrative and see Jesus in it. So the first one, turn in your Bibles to 2 Peter 3. 2 Peter 3, uh, and this is verses 3 through 9. In here we're going to see a picture of judgment from Christ that is connected to the, the, the narrative of the flood story. Okay? So here, here it is. I'm just, I'll just read the whole thing for us. 2 Peter 3, 3 through 9. Know this first of all, that in the, day, in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their, their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water, and by water through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but he is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Now, Peter is spending some time here refuting false teachers who deny the judgment of God that will come at the second coming of Christ. So that's his focus. Uh, These false teachers say that everything has continued the same since the beginning of creation. So why should we worry? But Peter shows us that God has already judged the world once through a flood. So he's going back to that flood narrative to be able to establish that God is indeed a God of judgment and he will not uh, fail to judge, ju- to judge sin. Uh, this judgment by water is a picture of the judgment of fire that will come when Jesus comes again. That's, the, that's, that's what Peter's trying to help us to see. This is an example of something else that's coming. 
That wasn't the final one, praise God. So we have time. That's the whole God is not count, God is not slow, right? Right now we have this reprieve where God is offering salvation. So certainly come and come, come to Him in faith, uh, and, and don't doubt, right? So, uh, this judgment could happen at any time. And we shouldn't presume upon God's patience, but rather repent and believe in Christ. So where do we see the connections and how does this help us understand uh, the flood narrative? Uh, The judgment of God in the flood is a picture and precursor of God's ultimate act of judgment, the return of Christ. So one is intended as a picture of the other. When we read about the flood and we think about how God judged the world with water, we should think about the reality that Jesus is coming again to judge the world with fire. And just as Noah and his family found refuge from God's judgment in the ark, we should find refuge from God's judgment by repenting and believing in Christ. So just like there was no salvation outside the ark in Noah's time, there will be no salvation outside of Jesus in our time. Okay? So that's one place where we can see the New Testament, the apostles, using the Old Testament to understand a truth about who God is and describe to us what the nature of God's judgment is going to be. So that's one. Uh, Second place where we can go to to help us to get a very clear reading uh, is flip back to 1 Peter. Peter liked Noah, apparently. He found him him to be very helpful. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 22. Right? So, and again, I'll read the passage and then we'll talk about some of the things that are, can be drawn out of this passage in order to understand uh, the flood narrative. Uh, for, Jesus, for Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but the appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. Now this passage clearly has some difficulties that we're not going to try to untangle. Uh, But let's keep keep our vision on the main... Uh, theme or the main structure of the passage. Uh, the, the main message here is that salvation, the salvation Noah and his family experienced in the ark corresponds to baptism. That's the main connection. How is that true? Now, baptism doesn't save us. Rather, it's a symbol of union with Christ that does save us, of the union with Christ that does save us. It proclaims that for those who believe, we are united with Christ in his death and resurrection. Okay? So just as Jesus died for our sins... We have died to our sin and no longer live in it, just as as Christ was raised from the dead. We have been raised from the dead and are walking in newness of life. Okay? So that's that's kind of the main salient points from the passage that we have in front of us. How do we see, you know, how how does that help us with the flood narrative, right? So this passage corresponds with the the salvation, and Peter's clear about making the connection, right? The salvation that eight persons who were in the ark experienced. Because just like they were saved from the flood in the ark, those who trust in Jesus are saved from God's wrath towards sin and saved to newness of life in Christ. Uh, When we read the story of Noah and the flood, we should see a correspondence between the salvation that the ark provided to Noah and his family and the salvation that Jesus provides for us. Noah and his family were saved 
in the ark, we are saved in Christ. All judgments in the Old Testament should make us think of the judgment. And all salvations in the Old Testament should make us think of the salvation that we have in Jesus. So, let me, I'll just stop there. I've got a couple of thoughts to wrap up here, but um, let's just stop there. Questions that you have. Do you, do you see how these New Testament passages are helping us to see more clearly what the Noah and the ark or Noah and the flood narrative should mean to us and how those other readings are, in the end, quite unhelpful? Yeah. The connection you made with no salvation outside of Christ when mm-hmm. thinking about the ark, because certainly if you're not in the ark, you're dead. That's right. That's right. And like I said, there's we. My family and I went to uh, uh, Ark Encounter this summer, and they do quite a good job, by the way, of of making sure that Jesus is put, uh, you know, put on display in the things that they did. And they had a they had I forget I think it was in the I think it was in the gift the gift shop. There were several paintings that were done to, de- to depict what was happening outside the ark. Um, and, you know, they're, they're not exactly paintings you want to hang on your dining room wall anyway. You know, because it, it, they're, they're, they're kind of hard to look at. No, not at all. Uh, and I, and I, the, the goal here wasn't to uh, set aside the fact that Noah was considered to be a righteous man. He was. The problem in our blind and fuzzy readings is that's the only thing that they mention. Nobody mentions, you know, you know drunk, drug naked Noah. No, everybody just kind of ignores that. And that's the problem. We don't, we don't need to de-emphasize Noah's righteousness. We need to have his entire character in view. So that's one, number one. Number two, we have to recognize that uh, where, why was Noah a righteous man? Was he a righteous man in his own strength and in his own ability to be righteous? No, he's a, uh, the drunk, drunk naked Noah reminds us that he's, he's a sinner just like the rest of us. So if he's righteous in any sense, he's righteous because of the, of the grace and goodness and kindness of God working in his life, not because of something that he's ginned up in his own character and pulled himself up by his bootstraps and somehow gotten the, the label of righteous by God. That's, so what we want to have is we want to have a correct and balanced view of our Old Testament heroes seeing the good things. I mean, David, we see lots of good things about David. We also, there's also lots of bad things about David, and we don't want to ignore either one. And the good things we want to attribute ultimately to the, to the work of God in their life, just like we in our lives attribute the goodness and the righteousness that we have, not to our own strength and our own ability, but to the work of the Holy Spirit as he works with us uh, as, after we've come to faith. 
So it's a good question. Brad, did you have something? I was just going to say that you know the point that Jacob was making, that the salvation in the ark and no salvation outside the ark, that's an example. That's not actually, that particular point is not actually explicit in either of these New Testament texts, but right. that's actually a good example of we don't just get to do it only when the apostles do it. Right. We actually are learning to read the Bible like the apostles do. Correct. So even if a New Testament text doesn't explicitly say the Christ-centered point that you're seeing, that doesn't mean... You, we don't only get to do it when when the New Testament goes, check, right? It, it, we actually get to do yes. that all over. The, there's, there's plenty of stories in the, New, in the Old Testament that we want to see Jesus in uh, that the New Testament doesn't explicitly yes. say. So yes. there's a, so Jacob and King of yeah. that was a that's a, I think a great Christ-centered yes. point. It's not actually in either of those Peter texts. Right. Still valid. And that's exactly right on. And the one of the reasons for that is that when we're looking at these texts from First Peter, he's got a point he's making. His point isn't that the out those outside of the ark perished. That's not his point. He's making a different point. But we want to be able to use these passages in the same way or as an illustration of how we can see the same things. And again, those story arcs that we were talking about, you know, God, man, Christ response. If we see that pattern in a story or, you know, creation, fall, redemption, new creation. If we see that arc in a story or any pieces of those arcs, right? And sometimes they're mixed, right? Um, And the more we read our Old Testament, the more sensitive we'll be to those themes, Um, but when we see them, we can grab onto them and say, ah, here's something that I can see, and I know that thing because I've been reading my New Testament as well. And I see that, I see what Jesus was doing or teaching or the apostles were saying, even in passages where they're not quoting the Old Testament, I see what they taught, right? And I see that echoed back in, the, in this Old Testament passage, and we know, and it's not cheating to say that this was part of what was going on there. Even though the original reader, if you will, may not have been able to put all those pieces together because they didn't have the progressive revelation that had gone far enough to give them that, those, those pieces of the answer key. Although Hebrews 11 certainly makes crystal clear that there were an awful lot of people in the Old Testament who understood enough to be in the hall of faith, right? It wasn't, and, we, and as Brad said last week, we don't often give them as much credit as we should um, when we think about how, how much it is that they knew and understood. Yeah. Okay, so how about some things that are of significance for us, right? As we read Noah and the flood, what are some things that we should be considering or we should be thinking about? We should be soberly reminded of the coming judgment by Jesus upon those apart from Jesus, right? The flood was a total destruction. There was no one spared and there was, and there was nowhere to hide except for the way that God provided. And that was in the ark and there was only one way to get in the ark, and that was to have God let you in. Right? And he's provided a way for us to be let into salvation by coming to Christ in faith. So we should be reminded of that coming judgment uh, in reading this story. Uh, second, we should be totally humbled by the grace of God to save anyone because of the work of Jesus. God is entirely sufficient all by himself. He didn't need to save us. But his, in his grace, he did exactly that. And just like Noah was in the ark, we are in Christ, safe and secure from the wrath of God. And make no mistake, it's the wrath of God that we're safe and secure from. 
right? We have been made safe from that. We no longer bear that on us. Jesus bore it for us. So we are safe and secure from it. And we need to be seeing that any, any who we can get to come into the ark through the door that is currently open will also be safe from that, from that judgment and that wrath. Uh, and lastly, we should be utterly astounded by the bigness of God's story centered in the saving work of Jesus, right? All of the Bible speaks of this story, and every single story that we have in the Old Testament whispers his name, his name. So that's Noah and how we can see Jesus in it. Next week, we will do Abraham and Isaac. Mike is going to lead us in that one. And uh, let me pray for us, and we can, uh, we can close it down. Father in heaven, we are grateful to you for the salvation that we have in Jesus. We do want to be reminded that we have been saved from an awful thing. We have been saved from your wrath. Uh, but uh, you have been totally gracious and totally kind and generous beyond imagination in providing that salvation to us. And so, Lord, get, let us rejoice in the salvation that we have in Christ. Uh, let us be bold and eager for others to share in this salvation that we have become partakers of. And, Lord, may we be always and forever amazed uh, by the story that you are telling us in the scriptures about the salvation that you have done. You are glorifying yourself, putting yourself on display so we can see you and the work that you have done in providing a way of salvation for us. And that is so, so, so glorious. We thank you for that. We ask that you would bless our worship this morning. And we ask for it all in Jesus' name. Amen.